KPBS On Demand is supported by the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu. The boss is about to offer you a real treat. Miss Layla Chen, daughter of Shanghai. Hollywood tried to stereotype Chinese-American actress Anna Mae Wong, but she had other plans. Look into my eyes. My vengeance is inspired tonight. Welcome back to listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie. I'm Beth Accomando. Born into a Chinese laundry in Los Angeles, Anna Mae Wong became Hollywood's most famous Asian-American actress and a global fashion icon in the early 20th century. But Hollywood deemed the screen siren and stunning beauty too white to play traditional Chinese roles and too Chinese to play white lead roles. Throughout her career, she fought against the racial stereotypes of the Dragon Lady, Madame Butterfly, and China Doll. Even when forced to take on these roles, she often managed to transcend them. Author Yunte Huang's new biography, Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History, chronicles not just her life and career, but also the racism, sexism, and ageism that she faced in her all-too-brief life. Were you looking for someone, Lieutenant? I might have been looking for you. I had hopes. Hollywood was looking for exotic beauty, and they found it in Anime Wong. But she was not willing to passively accept the stereotypes the studios wanted her to play. She seemed aware from early on that she was representing Asian culture and had to offer something different from what the studios wanted her to be and what audiences might be expecting. But have you decided what you're going to do? Well, let's see now. I think I'll do the Chinese poem. A Chinese poem? Yeah. You know, the one that goes like this? I need to take one quick break before talking about Anime Wong with her biographer, Yunte Huang. Hi, I'm Bill Hohen. And I'm Ted Hohen. Over the past 50 years, our family has brought many world-class dealerships to Carlsbad, including Mercedes-Benz, Porsche, Audi, Honda, Acura, Jaguar, and Land Rover. That's right. This year we're celebrating 50 years in Carlsbad. So on behalf of the entire Hohen family, we want to thank San Diego. Throughout the years, we've taken tremendous pride in meeting and even exceeding our customers' automotive needs. We value the relationships with our clients and look forward to serving you for years to come. We invite you to visit one of the Hohen Carlsbad dealerships or hohenmotors.com. Welcome back to Cinema Junkie. Actress Anna Mae Wong has been honored with a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame and her face on the U.S. quarter. She was a trailblazer in many ways for both women and Asian Americans. But because of the attitudes of her times that forbade an Asian actress from kissing a white man on screen, she was never really allowed to be a leading lady in the popular romantic sense. 
Some of her roles were severely criticized by the media in China, and some remain problematic for Asian Americans today. Well, I see doubt in all your faces. I see the thought in your eyes that I'm a traitor. Somehow I cannot blame you. I saw Mu Chao's father die, murdered, and I saw the fathers of two more comrades shot. If I did not show the pain in my face, it was in my heart. As someone of Chinese descent, I love Wong and appreciate her struggles and triumphs. Watching her films, you can see a radiance and defiance, even in her most limited roles. And when a rare film lets her shine, like the silent Piccadilly or the classic Shanghai Express, you wonder what she might have been able to achieve if cut loose from the social restrictions of her times. To discuss her career in films, I spoke with Yunte Huang, whose biography Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History, was just published. I began my interview by asking Huang to remind people who Anime Wong was. Well, Anime Wong, she was really the only Chinese face, genuine Chinese face, on the screen for almost half a century, you know, in the early, especially in the early days of Hollywood. So she was born in uh, 1905 uh, in her father's laundry in Los Angeles, uh, just, you know, uh, a few blocks outside of Chinatown. And so she literally rose from uh, Longerman's daughter to be a global icon. Uh, she became a big film star. She was the only one, really, uh, Chinese face, because, as you know, in the early years, most of the films, whenever they are China-themed or Asia-related, we also always have this called yellow face, right? So earlier I wrote this book on Charlie Chan, and Charlie Chan is a very famous example that, uh, you know, white actors have, you know, heavy makeups playing uh, Asian roles. So anyone was in the middle of all that kind of outrageous racism against Asians. But somehow, despite all the obstacles and the hurdles, uh, she managed to make a name for herself. And so my book was really about that experience, and but it also especially, you know, her struggles, uh, despite her talent, her beauty, and her, her tenacity, somehow her career came up, I would say, somewhat short, right? Um, so that's the story. And she was born in Los Angeles. And tell us about how she kind of got interested in film, because it seemed like from a very early age, she kind of was fascinated by that world of film. So to draw an analogy, for instance, today, you know, all my students have a phone in class. They play with phone, make teaching extremely difficult and challenging. So film technology was sort of like cell phones in those years. And so all, I think, I mean, almost every American girl or boy would dream of becoming a big star, right? Uh, a generation of people who will come from any place in Ohio, Midwest, you know, Illinois, you buy a one-way train ticket and get off uh, Central Station or later on Union Station in LA and dreaming of becoming a big star on the screen. Fortunately for Anime Wong, uh, she didn't need to buy a train ticket. <laughs> Hollywood actually came to her. I mean, not personally, but uh, as I describe in the book, it turns out uh, Chinatown, given that kind of supposed exoticism, the people, the shops, and the decor and everything, it was a ready-made set for early films. And so Hollywood just, you know, just need to go across town and we'll shoot a lot of scenes in Chinatown. And so 
growing up in that generation, everyone, unsurprisingly, was totally enamored, uh, you know, fascinated by the new technology and uh, the, the dream of that, the career. So she started uh, hanging out, you know, around film shoots and everything until one day she got a little kind of extra kind of bit part um, in a film. And that's really set off her career. And also remind people of the challenges that she did face, because it was not only trying to fight the images that Hollywood wanted to see on the screen, but there were laws against interracial marriage. I mean, there were real societal prejudices that existed at the time in the 20s, 30s, and 40s that she had to deal with, as well as just Hollywood stereotypes. Oh, absolutely. So if America fell in love with Anime Wang because of her looks, and she's stunningly beautiful and talented, I would say that romance became a taboo also because of her looks, because she was Chinese. And as I said earlier, she was living at a time when yellow face was the predominant mode of, uh, of performance. Just, you know, one example, anti-miscegenation law, not just in terms of marriage, but also on screen. So, you know, uh, a non-white actress will not be allowed to uh, kiss or be kissed by a white man. And that, of course, uh, doomed her career in many ways, that she won't, won't be able to get a, a lead part, you know, lead role in a, uh, in a romantic film, for instance. So she always had to play second fiddle. And so we're talking about a time when Chinese so will be considered as being too Chinese to play a Chinese role. I mean, forgive the tongue twister, but it was a sad reality at the time, but especially for anime Wang. And that was a big challenge she had to overcome. So as you see, she later on, after her career had the great beginning in Hollywood, she was at the age of 16. She was able to play a lead role, actually, in A Tall of the Sea. This is like first Technicolor film. And she did have a big part in the lead role. But then after that, she was never able to get another lead part again because of these racist practices. So she had to leave for Europe. And there, her career really took off. I'm not saying Europe didn't have any racial problem, <laughs> far from it. But she somehow, free from Hollywood restrictions, she was able to take advantage of some of the uh, cultural environment in Europe available. And she made a big name for herself and returned to Hollywood and again, so it's the up and down of her career. And this is really her story. And what do you think it was about her that allowed her to become this first kind of icon of Asian American beauty and, and talent on the screen? Do you think it was about her beauty, about her personality, about her tenacity? I mean, what do you think it was that allowed her to get as much success as she did have? Well, it's a combination of everything, just like, you know, any dish you cook. It's the, <laughs> it's the ingredients, it's the temperature, it's the timing, everything. I think she's, in that way, she's really remarkable. And that was really, for many years, she was really the only one. So despite all the stereotypical roles Hollywood imposed upon her, that she had no choice but to play, as if you look into her life, then you will see how remarkable she was in terms of doing this kind of very delicate dance between a Madame Butterfly kind of, kind of stereotype, a self-sacrificing Asian woman, and a Dragon Lady, this kind of daunting, uh, threatening Dragon Lady stereotype. She was doing this dance in between 
and able to carve out a space for herself and a kind of creative space, but especially for the later generations of uh, Asian American and you know um, uh, artists as well. And so in that way, she was really, it's a combination of her talent, her beauty, and her tenacity, certainly. And your book is not what I would call a conventional biography. It's not just a story of her life. So explain to people kind of what they can expect from this and, and what you bring into this story. When I was in graduate school, I studied with an anthropologist and a great anthropologist who did uh, field work with, Zuni, with Zunis. Uh, and what he taught me was that stories come with their own telling. As you said, my book is not a typical biography is that I would try to bring not just the stories, but their tellings. For instance, uh, Annie Milan's trip to China, when she was very disappointed once again, the biggest disappointment in her life was her inability to get this big part in The Good Earth. And that was like the biggest China film at the time. And uh, when Pearl Buck won the Nobel Prize and the Pulitzer and the Nobel Prize, everybody knew The Good Earth will be the biggest China film of those years. And Annie Wang, given her status, her talent, everything, She'll be perfect for the lead role, a female lead. Once again, uh, Hollywood's addiction to Yellowface led to casting Louise Rayner, the Austrian actress. I mean, to her credit, Louise Rayner was very good. She actually won an Oscar for that role. And uh, Paul Mooney, the male lead, was also very talented. Again, it's Yellowface. So when Anime One was utterly disappointed, and so she took off for China, unlike last time, you know, she went to Europe, but this time, 1936, Europe was in a, you know, the war was coming. It was not just not possible. So she went to China. And uh, so I grew up in China. <laughs> I know all those places. So one of the things I wanted to do in my book was not simply to retrace her footsteps in Shanghai, Hong Kong, or in old Peking. You know, I, I went to college in Beijing. But I really want to have a lot of em emotional investment uh, in telling her story is to figure out how she will feel, right? During her soul-searching China trip, how will she feel about her ancestral village where she had never seen, although she have heard a great deal about her father came from there, all her ancestors. In order to convey those feelings, merely kind of telling the biographical facts is certainly not enough. Uh, I need to bring the scene of telling as well. I guess that's kind of how differently I will approach these narratives. And you've written about other iconic Asians. Uh, you did a book on the Siamese twins, the famous Siamese twins, and you mentioned Charlie Chan. And all of your books bear the subtitle of Rendezvous with American History. And what's important to you about including that in the titles? Well, I'm a mystery buff. As you see, rendezvous sounds like, you know, casing the joint and <laughs> there's a mystery about it. This is a trilogy, as you said. Uh, this trilogy is called a Rendezvous with America. I'm interested in describing the epic journey of Asian Americans in the making of American history. Three or four, depending on how you count the Siamese twins, right? Because they're joint, right? But there's a one icon, but actually two human beings. And so these cultural icons, they are very complicated, complex. Uh, for instance, uh, Charlie Chan is an obvious example, right? The first of my trilogy is a very controversial figure. And a lot of Asian Americans still feel quite ambivalent about it because, you know, this yellow face and demeaning character to 
of, of Asians. Mr. Charlie Chan. Humbly acknowledged name. I'm Philip Nash, Sir Stanley Woodland's secretary. I'm most happy to make acquaintance. <laughs> this is Sir Stanley's niece, Miss Diana Woodland from Canada. Sir Stanley asked me to apologize for not meeting you himself, but he was detained on business. You'll see him, of course, at the banquet tonight. There is banquet. Oh, why, of course. The arrival in Shanghai of so distinguished a visitor can't go unnoticed. <laughs> uh, much uh, flattered by unexpected acknowledgement of humble efforts. <laughs> You'll have to make a speech, you know. Oh, uh, idea of making speech, <laughs> bring goose pimples, <laughs> much scared. <laughs> On the other hand, there's also the very funny side, you know, a funny and creative side. That's something I found interesting, kind of paradox in American culture. On the one hand, racial imagination, mimicry, is realized at the heart of American history and the culture. The founding of this great nation was started with Boston Tea Party. And of course, who are the party goers? These are Bostonians dressed up as uh, Mohawk Indians and threw chests of tea into the harbor. So it's racial mimicry. So I would say that racism, racial imagination, you know, it's fundamental to American culture. So when people argue, that, you know, the Charlie Chan films should be banned. I would disagree. I ran away from China because I look for this kind of freedom of imagination and everything. So to look at American culture this way, I think Charlie Chan is a complex figure we need to untangle. It's like a Chinese box. Well, one layer, there's another layer, another layer. So the same way with Anime One. Her legacy is really somewhat ambivalent. People are still very ambivalent about her because of the stereotypical roles uh, she was forced to play because she had no choice. And so people are not happy, including a lot of Chinese from China, in China, for instance. So that China trip, you know, she took in 1936, for instance. Yeah, I mean, she was welcomed as the global star. People are happy about it, proud. But on the other hand, some critics were pretty kind of negative uh, or nasty toward her for, for doing those roles. So I think, you know, I've chosen these cultural icons who are kind of complex, not easy to interpret. And, and through them, I came to understand American culture in a much better way. And you brought up the fact that some people would like to ban some of these films that don't represent Asians in a positive light. And, you know, we're at this point where it feels like people want to censor the past to make it more palatable for the present. And I really hate that idea because for multiple reasons, but I mean, I feel like we can't appreciate where we are if we don't know where we've come from and we can't see how far we've come and how far we still need to go. So kind of address that. I mean, why is it important for us to see some of these films of Anime Wong, some of them where she really kind of transcends a role, some of them where she's really kind of boxed in by it. Right. But I feel like we need to see these films, maybe with a context, but we need to see these films. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm not saying pencil culture or anything. I think that's kind of empty slogan. People use that label to get whatever they want. But once again, if you understand racial mimicry, you know, lies at the heart of American culture, then you have to understand, yeah, yellow face is racist. But on the other hand, racial imagination was really the driving force of American culture. So today, for instance, we are celebrating the phenomenal success of not just, you know, in literature, you know, in a Chinatown by Charles Yu or win, you know, major prizes. And we have Squid Game on Netflix from Korea. And of course, Michelle Yeoh winning Oscar, as if we're celebrating all these phenomenal successes, but you have to understand how far we have traveled. Only about 50 or 60 years ago, Anime Wong 
one of the most beautiful Chinese actresses, talented, was not able to play a Chinese role because she was considered not Chinese enough in some ways, according to American stereotype. Understand that. And today, Michelle Yeoh can win Oscar. So when I saw that, I felt as if Animal One had come back alive to reclaim the title that she deserved. So you're absolutely right. Uh, without understanding where we have been through, we won't be able to understand uh, what the hell is going on. What does this mean? So everybody, is, of course, is drawn to glamour and the spectacle and the spectral of success and everything. But I'm really trying to look underneath to find out what lies underneath all that glitter. And uh, so that's really the anime one story. And also, I have to say that even when she was kind of boxed into these stereotypical roles, there is something about her that is really kind of transcendent above the role. Oh, yes. Her ability to pull it off, just to understand, she survived, not just survived, but thrived in the moment of key transitions in Hollywood, right? From silent to talky, and then from film to television. You know, she survived all of them. So people ask me, like, what is my favorite anime on film? Uh, in the silent era, it's a no-brainer. It's Piccadilly. She made in UK. It is like the swan song of the silent era. And away from Hollywood, she was able to play with a lot of kind of artistic freedom. And she was cast in the most provocative and erotic role. But despite the success, or maybe because of the success, she was invited. She was given this lead part on British theater on stage, British stage, right? In Shakespeare's town. And the moment she spoke, critics were still fascinated by her performance and talent. But when she spoke, they were appalled by the California Valley girl accent, you know? And she realized, and then of course, as you know, that's the moment when film transitioned from silent to talking. And a lot of big stars fell by the wayside the moment they, they spoke, right? And Animal immediately realized she needed to work on her accent. And so she spent a lot of money, hired a tutor, a coach from Oxford, so she left America in 1928 as a, like this kind of flapper in chic clothing. When she returned two years later, you know, she was wearing European fashion design clothes and sporting a upper-class British accent. So as you see, that kind of, she was able to transcend, not just survive the moment and it came up. And just to give another example, she was also in a, you know, on top of um, a film icon, she was also a fashion icon, right? And uh, that's still part of her charm in American popular imagination today is, you know, anime one, the clothes. So she had this uncanny ability, for instance, to turn working class symbols such as coolie hat, a coolie jacket, right? And turn them into high class fashion. General Kaimura is a very fastidious man. He prefers the company of cultured women, ladies of high estate. Do you think you can assume such a role? I am Madame Huang Tai, in the great house of Wang. My father's wealth was confiscated. Not confiscated. Lost. Lost. Good. You are an apt pupil, madam. General Kaimura would never know that you are not a lady of high estate. Except for, for these. We must get rid of them. I own nothing else. Well, then follow me to the hotel. That can easily be arranged. But do not walk too close. It would not do for me to be seen walking with a coolie woman. I mean, imagine that. 
so that that unique ability, uh, you know, to to transcend, as you say, is totally admirable. And I have not seen all of her films, but I've seen quite a few, and. I appreciated that she never allowed the studios to make her speak in that kind of broken English that a lot of those stereotypes had. And I'm just wondering if she had battles to say, like, no, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to do that. Oh, definitely. I think so. And that's part of the reason she was, wasn't able to get, you know, everything she wanted in some ways, the pushback. And so one time, for instance, when making the Shanghai Express, again, that's one of my favorite uh, uh, in the talkie era, she was, you know, co-starring with Marina Dietrich. I don't know if I ought to be grateful to you or not. It's of no consequence. I didn't do it for you. Death cancel his debt to me. And uh, she was great, despite the fact she was playing second fiddle and uh, this kind of noirish film in which she will speak, actually, I will argue, the, the best kind of deadpans. And so at one time, you know, uh, Joseph von Sternberg, you know, the, the director, right, from Austria, who was very inventive, and he actually hand-painted himself the train. He kind of created China out of these cardboards. So anyone went over and said, well, this train does not look like the train we see in China. And uh, Joseph von Sternberg, he said, well, that's what a train is supposed to look, by my standard. I mean, it's a great film. But if you look at the train, that was kind of almost like a surreal, in a sense, in China. So it's a, it's a tug of war between reality and imagination, fantasy, and anime caught, you know, may one caught in the between of that tug of war between Hollywood's fantasy and, and the reality was out there, what China looks like, what Chinese Americans really were. And so she was, you know, given, caught in this space, as you can see, this kind of struggle and the suffering. And uh, in the book, I call that, you know, she suffered this kind of virtual form of food binding, right? Hollywood imposed uh, the rules and everything. And so um, having your feet bound, but still able to walk and, and not to jog, at least, you know, to travel and to, to take the steps. Uh, and, and that's, you know, the essence of uh, Enemy One's story. You cannot kill me. You cannot kill China. Not even a million deaths could crush the soul of China. For the soul of China is eternal. When I die, a million will take my place. And nothing can stop them. Neither hunger, nor torture, nor the firing squad. We shall live on until the enemy is driven back over scorched land and hurled into the sea. That time will come soon, for the armies of decency and liberty are on the march. For China's destiny is victory. It will live because human freedom will not perish. And she seemed to be very much aware of kind of being this person to represent I mean, it's a big burden, but to kind of represent Asian Americans. And she seemed to be kind of aware of that in the sense of resisting some of those stereotypes that Hollywood was pushing on her and to say, to make a statement with some of her films and some of her work. Oh, yes. That's why I said, who can really best represent the Asian American experience all those years better than anime one? I mean, no one else, really. So not, she's not just the face on the screen. In reality, in the war years, she was also the face of China. 
when it comes to China relief, wartime relief and everything. She devoted herself wholeheartedly to this. So she's also her relation you know, to her family. So she's, you know, really uh, performing all these kind of, you know, multitasking in some ways, multiple roles, the demand and the restrictions and all that. In some sense, she's not alone. For instance, just to give you an analogy, so since uh, James Wang Hao, a very famous photographer, right, cinematographer, he won Oscar twice. So he was a good friend of Anne Mei Wong. He married a Caucasian woman, uh, James Wang Hao. And the marriage was recognized. And when James Howe made a lot of money, he was very successful. And one time he bought a very expensive car. And when he drove it down to Sunset Boulevard, the strip, people were there and uh, wondering which family will allow their Chinese houseboy to drive around in such expensive car. And that's the kind of reality, right? So anyone will look at James Wang Hao's career in your life, uh, the, the quote-unquote illegal marriage. So, so it, it became a cautionary tale for her. So she's not alone. She's orbiting in this China, Chinese community. In Hollywood, she had you know, a handful of friends, but they all share the same kind of prejudice, suffer from the same kind of prejudice. For another example, Philip Ang. So uh, in, in my book, I describe the making of Dado Shanghai. When Anime Wang finally, her character was given a romantic ending, but this time, of course, with an Asian man, played by Philip Ong. How would you like to live in Washington? Perhaps a change of climate is just what I need. Then it's settled. Does that mean you're asking me to marry you? And at the time, Hollywood rumor mill was going crazy over Philip Ong and Anime Wang. Maybe they are romantically involved. But of course, it turns out Philip Ang was gay and Anime Wang is, I think she's bisexual as well. So they're actually using each other as so-called a proverbial beard to, to fend off uh, the prying eyes of the public. So she was living in a community, not alone. She's transcendent. I totally understand what she's you know, standing for and uh, representing as well. And what was it about her that made you want to write this book? Why this particular Asian-American icon versus something else? Well, what's not like? <laughs> we are talking about one of the most charming, beautiful, talented, and tenacious Chinese actress around. In this trilogy, I wrote Charlie Chan book first. And, and that was a surprise because I wasn't prepared to write that story. And until one day, you know, I, I, for whatever reason, I, I wrote that. But writing about Charlie Chan the early, I go once again, early days of Hollywood. And uh, anyone was right there. Okay, it's inevitable. And she was also good friends with Warner Olin, who was the big yellow face actor of Charlie Chan. And they're actually, you know, best friends. And it's it kind of ironic, right? This Swedish guy, boy coming from America, dropping the umlaut in her family name, became Olin, Ulan from Olin, Americanized herself, himself, and became the big star of, uh, of Chinese characters. He played Dr. Fu Manchu and Charlie Chan, the good and bad Chinaman. And uh, so Anime Wang playing along on the side of Warner Olin, uh, befriending him, in some ways, it's inevitable. I have to describe her and the researcher career. So for that reason, um, it's kind of almost no brainer. When I was done with uh, Charlie Chan book, and then with the Siamese Twins, the second installment of my trilogy, 
taking us back to the early, you know, the earlier century, 19th century, American culture, the freak show and everything, the attitude toward Asians, using the Siamese twins as an example, and now back to, to anime one, it's sort of kind of, it makes sense. What films would you recommend for people to seek out? And when I ask this, I also want you to recommend films that can be found because some of her work is hard to track down. But like, what what would you give people as kind of a primer on anime Wong on the screen? The first one I would say is definitely Piccadilly, 1929. It's a swan song of the silent era. And she was really, like I said earlier, enjoyed the artistic freedom to do things that she always wanted to do or not allowed to do in Hollywood. And the second one up will definitely be Shanghai Express with Marlena Dietrich. And it's really a well-made film. And what I especially like about it, like I said earlier, despite the fact she was playing second fiddle to Marlena Dietrich, she really pulled it off and stood her ground and she was really the driving engine, you know, behind Shanghai Express, you know, the train in some ways. And so if you look at that, you understand how talented uh, she was, uh, given the small part of, you know, of, of the role she played. I heard your gramophone, ladies, and thought I'd come in and get acquainted, if you don't mind. Not at all. Come in. It's a bit lonely on the train, isn't it? I'm used to having people around. I have a boarding house in Shanghai. Yorkshire pudding is my specialty, and I only take the most respectable people. Don't you find respectable people terribly dull? You're joking, aren't you? I've only known the most respectable people. You see, I keep a boarding house. What kind of a house did you say? A boarding house. Oh. I'm sure you're very respectable, madam. I must confess, I don't quite know the standard of respectability that you demand in your boarding house, Mrs. Haggerty. I've made a terrible mistake. I'd better look after me dog. And uh, after that, The Daughter of the Dragon, from which my book took its title, is really vintage and definitive anime one. Only one of the house of Fu can redeem our honor. The blood is mine. The hate is mine. The vengeance shall be mine. My flower daughter, the knife would wither your petal fingers. Gods, my ancestors, if only thou had granted me another son. Father, father, I will be your son. I will be your son. Swear, man-daughter, to deliver the soul of Ronald Petrie to me, to our ancestors. I swear. And many people actually don't like it because of this kind of theatrical performance. And this is a vintage anime one because it's, that's the film that sealed her reputation as the Dragon Lady. But despite all that, uh, you kind of have to watch that to understand the torture she had to go through to perform, to do this role and to perform this. And these are like a flea. I will, I, I think it's a good starter and they are easily available. And another thing that was impressive about your book was the illustrations. I mean, there's some great images in there. So what kind of research did you do or how did you kind of uncover some of these images and decide what to include? Oh, yeah. Well, 
Uh, first of all, they are expensive to get. <laughs> Imagine uh, the copyright and everything. Yes, anyone images that are all over the place. And uh, so it, it's hard to choose, certainly. And I had to let go some of the images I really wanted, it, but they're just too expensive or it's impossible to track down the copyright holders. And unfortunately, so one of my favorite uh, of all the images, and fortunately it is included in the book, is anime one wearing this coolie hat, sporting this kind of 10 inch long nail guards, kind of jam studded nail guards, right? As a you know college professor, I always had the fantasy, you know, I can wear this kind of 10 inch long nail guards when I teach. That will make me a formidable teacher, apparently, when I speak to my students pointing at them. Well, I mean, sort of a joke, but not really. And that image, captures her charm in, in many ways as a fashion icon, a unique ability to working class symbols into fashion, but also the dragon lady like, you know, nail gods. So she's very multi, you know, her charm is kind of multifaceted. Well, I like the way she would kind of slyly take the stereotype and then twist it a bit. Mm -hmm. So that she was playing into it, but also against it at the same time. Oh, absolutely. I mean, visually, she will do that. Uh, really, I mean, she wear, well, you know, this Chinese robe, shipao, as in, like her second skin. Uh, visually, yes, but also verbally. One of the things I found out uh, writing this book is that she actually barely graduated from high school. But she's actually a very talented writer. She had 200, more than 200, you know, letters to her friends. But especially, they had, she has serialized newspaper articles that she wrote when she was traveling in China. If you read her writing, she's actually very talented. So once again, going back to the, the tease and the, the, the humor and everything. So some of her pet phrases are like, you know, orientally yours. So she will sign her uh, publicity photo, uh, say orientally yours. And that phrase itself, as you see, is tongue in cheek. You can say she's accepting this kind of Orientalism, uh, people's, you know, uh, attitude toward her. Although, on the other hand, she was also teasing, you know, Orientally York. And the other paraphrase is like, uh, uh, Confucius didn't say this. And when, before she kind of, you know, <laughs> said her own kind of dead hand, right? I possess everything within my reach, so I've stopped wanting. Mr. Confucius? Lan Ying. And she totally understood the Charlie Chanish stereotype people have that as if Chinese always like all Charlie Chan spouting of Confucian aphorisms. And so she would say, you know, Confucius didn't say this. So she totally, you know, at ease, I think, with this kind of how people look at her and how she can maneuver, at least challenge people a little bit, not kind of, you know, in your face. But, you know, she will do this in a very interesting way. And that's really part of her charm as well. That was author Yuntae Huang. His new book is Daughter of the Dragon, Anime Wong's Rendezvous with American History. That wraps up another edition of KPBS listener-supported Cinema Junkie. If you enjoy the podcast, then please share it with a friend, because your recommendation is the best way to build an addicted audience. You can also help by leaving a review. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by 
the University of San Diego, offering professional and continuing education courses in the areas of business, education, healthcare, and engineering. For enrollment opportunities, visit pce.sandiego.edu.